Guardian Unlimited. Questions to the Prime Minister, Andrew Salou. Number one, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, sir, before listening my engagement, I have the sad duty again to ask the House to join me in sending our profound condolences to the family and friends of Rifleman Paul Donaghy, of 2nd Battalion, the Rifles, who was killed in Iraq at the weekend. We pay tribute to him for his dedication and his sacrifice. This has been a difficult month for our forces in Iraq, and more so for their families, and we send them our thoughts and prayers and sympathy at this time. Mr. Speaker, sir, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others in addition to my duties in the House. I will further such meetings later today. Andrew Salou. Mr. Speaker, the whole House will wish to join the Prime Minister in his expression of condolence. If the Prime Minister had a quote for an extension on his House 18 months ago, which was resubmitted today for more than two and a half times the original amount, I suspect he might get a few more quotes. Could I ask him to do exactly the same on behalf of my constituents, all of whom will benefit from the A5M1 link, and very kindly meet with me and Highways Agency officials to find out why costs have escalated so astronomically and to see what can be done about it. Well, first of all, in relation to uh, the costs of of the particular scheme he's referring to, I think those costs have escalated. Um, But on the other hand, it is only because we're making money available for investment that that scheme can go ahead at all. I'm perfectly happy to, to meet him and discuss the scheme with him. But I have to say, obviously, the business case for it has got to be made good. And that business case has got to be made good on the basis of the funding that's available from the Transport Department. David Blunkett. Mr. Speaker, um, could I congratulate my right honourable friend on the 10th anniversary of his premiership? Yeah. And on the tremendous vision and leadership that he's shown in our country, could I ask my right honourable friend, could I ask my right honourable friend, if he would uh, if he would address the balance to be achieved between understanding the hurt and concern of those bereaved or injured on the 7th of July 2005, and the need for absolute focus on the security service and police work, and the congratulations and debt of gratitude we owe them for the work they did in Operation Crevice in saving us in early 2004 from the most devastating terrorist attack which would have involved the most enormous loss of life. Well, first of all, um, I would say to my my right honourable friend that he is absolutely right in drawing attention to the magnificent work that our security services do and that the police do in protecting this country from terrorism. And it's worthwhile just reminding ourselves that Operation Crevice itself was an enormous success for those security services and police. And that is one, incidentally, of many, many different plots that they protect our country from day in, day out. And I entirely understand the concern of the families of those victims of 7-7. But I do believe that the Intelligence and Security Committee report is the right report. And I do believe also, as he has indicated, that it would be wrong to divert resources and attention and energy into anything else at this stage other than fighting terrorism on all fronts. I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Paul Donachy and the soldier from the Royal Signals who have been killed in Basra in the last week. The conviction of five British-born men for planning terrorist attacks on a massive scale reminds us, as the Honourable Member for Sheffield, Right Honourable Member for Sheffield Brightside has said, about the risks that we face. 
The links between those convicted and those responsible for the 7-7 bombings, which killed 52 people in London, do raise, though, a number of important questions. Given the need to enhance public confidence in the fight against terrorism and answer these questions, can the Prime Minister clarify, has he once and for all ruled out having a proper independent inquiry? I, I have ruled out having another proper and in, independent inquiry. The fact is the Intelligence and Security Committee went into all of these issues in immense detail. For their report, they had to be somewhat cryptic because the case in Operation Crevice was at that point uh, sub judice. But they did, in fact, receive the vast bulk of the information, and they're now perfectly entitled to call for anything else that they need to. But they went into this in immense detail, and I really do believe that it would be a mistake for us to have another inquiry as if their inquiry was somehow either not proper or not independent. It was both of those things. The, the Prime Minister says that the Intelligence and Security Committee report will be equivalent, as it were, to a full independent inquiry. And I have to say to him, I really don't think that is right. For all the good work, for all the good work that the ISC does, it does have its limitations. It has no investigative powers. It has no investigator. It didn't hear evidence from the West Yorkshire Special Branch. Aren't these good reasons for an independent inquiry? Not a public inquiry, but a full independent inquiry. First of all, let me just make one thing clear. The Intelligence and Security Service were perfectly entitled to ask for any information they wanted. As far as I'm aware, everyone gave them maximum cooperation throughout it. So it simply would be wrong to say that in some um, way or other, they didn't have the information they wanted. Any information they want to have, they can. The um, Intelligence and Security Committee is headed by um, my right honourable friend, who was a former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Its members are people who have got experience in the intelligence and security field as former ministers, many of them. And I really think we, we've got to be very clear about this. The reason why people want another inquiry is because, and I totally understand both the, the, the grief of the victims of 7-7 and their anxiety to have another inquiry. But the reason for that is that people want another inquiry to reach a different conclusion. Now, that is understandable, but I don't think it would be responsible for us in circumstances where the Intelligence and Security Committee have had access to everything that they have needed, could have access to anything else that they need, for us then to have a full, independent, further inquiry, which will simply have the security service and the police and others diverted from the task of fighting terrorism. I have to disagree with the Prime Minister. The reason people want an independent inquiry is because of the scale of what happened in London on the 7th of July when 52 people were murdered and 700 were injured. The reason people want a full inquiry is to get to the truth. In the case of the... This is important. In the case of the intelligent... In the case of the intelligent failures before the Iraq war, yes, there was an ISC inquiry, but the Prime Minister ordered the Butler inquiry as well. Isn't it equally important to get to the truth in this case as well? See, I'm afraid I have to say to what, what I object to about this is the idea that somehow there has been some attempt not to provide the truth up to now. I don't believe for a single instant that the Intelligence and Security Committee did not get to the truth. Indeed, they had the information that was revealed in Operation Crevice before them. They looked into it in immense detail. 
And some of what has appeared uh, in the media, frankly, is simply misleading and wrong. It is also wrong, as the Shadow Home Secretary has been saying. I think he said in a newspaper article the other day that MI5 and the security services after 9-11 have been starved of resources. That is simply not correct. Its budget has been doubled. We have actually increased dramatically the number of people that are working for our security services. And the whole point about it is this. These people do an immensely difficult task. They came along to the Intelligence and Security Committee, the then head of MI5, Five gave evidence three times. Special branch, again, contrary to what the Shadow Home Secretary has said, did give evidence to the committee. The committee were able to call for whatever information they wanted. If we end up now saying, effectively, the Intelligence and Security Committee it was not an adequate inquiry, we now have another inquiry, I tell, I tell them we will simply cause great anxiety and difficulty within the service. We won't get any more truth, because the truth is there in the Intelligence and Security Committee, but what we will do is undermine support for our security services, and I'm simply not prepared to do it. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will be aware that uh, Labour has delivered on its commitment to build a new cancer unit in Leeds, and that Leeds people know that only a Labour government will deliver on a children's hospital. There's a powerful... There's a powerful campaign being developed by parents and the YEP. Will he use his energy and commitment to urge the NHS trusting lease to get its act together to submit a realistic plan to build a children's hospital? I, I certainly uh, will do exactly as my honourable friend says, and he is of course completely right in saying there has been uh, a huge multi-million pound investment set aside for Leeds. We of course want to see the very best of services there, and he will know from his experience um, of his own constituency that waiting lists have come down significantly. There are extra doctors, extra nurses, and of course a massive capital investment in the NHS. Sir Lewis Campbell. Yeah. Once again I join the Prime Minister in his expressions of sympathy and condolence at the end of what he rightly describes as a most difficult month. Neither the former Secretary of State for Defence has admitted that there were serious errors in the planning for post war Iraq. Who takes responsibility for these errors? The responsibility for everything to do with the conduct of the Iraq war, of course, is taken by the government. And the points that my right honourable friend were making about debarthification and the disbandment of the army are points I myself have made before. However, let me just say to the right honourable gentleman, the reason why things are so challenging and difficult in Iraq is that we have al-Qaeda on the one hand, which is an outside terrorist organisation committing appalling acts of carnage in Iraq, and Iranian-backed Shia extremists, and our job, in my view, is to stand up to both of those elements, since they're precisely the elements we face in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and the world over. But isn't it clear where responsibility for Iraq lies? The President made the decisions, the Prime Minister argued the case, the Chancellor signed the cheques, and the Tories voted it through. That's where the responsibility for Iraq is to be found. And if his policy had been implemented, Saddam Hussein and his two sons would still be running Iraq. Yes, they would. And, and hundreds of thousands of people died in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. We removed Saddam. We're fighting terrorism now in Iraq. And our troops are there with the United Nations mandate and the full support of the Iraqi government. It isn't British soldiers or indeed American soldiers that are committing acts of terrorism in Iraq. It is people who are going there specifically to stop that country's democracy working. And I believe our job is to stand up for Iraq and its democracy against terrorism. Yeah. Dennis Skinner. Oh, it's a big one. Uh, would my right honourable friend 
if he's not having an inquiry into the matters affecting the July the 7th, will he have another inquiry into Black Wednesday, September the 16th, 1992? Because it's now apparent that new information has emerged. It appears that the leader of the opposition is on a photograph and he was not trailed at the time. Therefore, I believe it demands a new inquiry. It will suit this side of the house and it might even drive another man to drugs. Well, actually, an inquiry is one way. Uh, inquiry is, uh, is one way of dealing with this, but the other way is to make sure that the right honourable gentleman never gets his hands on the British economy again. John Barron. Mr. Speaker, the, on the 24th of September 2002, the Prime Minister told this House that if he was able to purchase fissile material illegally then it would only be one to two years before Saddam Hussein had acquired a usable nuclear weapon. Given a recent letter I have from the Cabinet Office can find no basis for this claim, a claim which was not attributed to the JIC and which did not reflect the standing JIC assessment, as the Prime Minister knew very well, on what basis did he make that claim, both in his statement to the House and in the Iraq dossier? First of all, I don't, I don't accept what he says at all, actually, because the fact is, if Saddam Hussein had been able to acquire fissile material, it would have allowed him to develop um, nuclear weapons. That is correct. And the one thing that we know is that he is somebody who actually used, for example, not nuclear, but chemical and biological weapons against his own people. So let me just say to the honourable gentleman, some people may take the view that Saddam was not a threat. That is not my view. He was a threat, and we dealt with him. Jesus Stewart. Speaker. On the 20th of May, a constituent of mine, Sir Richard Knowles, will celebrate his 90th birthday. Yeah. Dick Knowles became the leader of Birmingham City Council in 1984, when, despite a Tory government that did not believe in investing in our cities, he changed the face of that city. Yeah. Will the Prime Minister join me, A, in congratulating Dick Knowles on his birthday, but also will he share my hope? that the weak and indecisive leadership we are currently experiencing in Birmingham will soon come to an end. Well, I also agree with my uh, honourable friend entirely and let me join with her in wishing uh, Dick Knowles all the best on his 90th birthday. He was someone who did an immense amount for Birmingham. One of the reasons why Birmingham is such a thriving and successful European city today is because of the work Dick Knowles did. Cameron. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Two, two years ago, the Prime Minister told us he would serve a full third term. Yesterday, he said he'd be off in weeks. He's now told us who's going to wear the crown. Can he tell us who wielded the knife? Well, um, if, he, if he wants to talk about leadership and candidates, I certainly won't be following his example from the Mayor of London. <laughs> and I can assure him that the person I will be backing for the leadership of the Labour Party will at least be a member of the Labour Party. <laughs> Why is he so coy? 
Why won't he tell us a bit about the man who's going to be our Prime Minister and, and how he managed to get the better of him? Given the Prime Minister said he'd serve a full third term, does that mean that when he walks out of Number 10 Downing Street, this Parliament is at an end? Or was that the last of his broken promises? Since he asked me to tell him something about uh, my right honourable friend, I will, I will tell him something about what we have achieved together over these last ten years. Economic stability through the independence of the Bank of England. Record investment in public services. Better maternity leave and paternity pay. More support for pensioners. Repeal of Section 28. A ban on tobacco advertising. The climate change levy. And of course the minimum wage. And what do they all have in common? His party voted against them. Anne Moffat. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Does my right honourable friend share my growing concern about the seemingly acceptability of taking cannabis and the fact that it can lead to mental health problems? But does my right honourable friend know how to grow your own dope? You plant a Scottish nationalist. I think uh, my. My honourable friend has made a point very well, which is why I hope people vote for the Union and for Scotland and England staying together uh, tomorrow and not for separation. Richard Younger Ross. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, yeah. one part of the government's modernisation. Order, oh, order. Oh, let, let the honourable gentleman speak. The honourable gentleman. I seem to have upset them again, Mr. Speaker. One part of the government's modernisation programme that is proving very popular with older people are bus passes for the over 60s. Is the Prime Minister aware that Lib Dem authorities such as Teambridge are meeting with that demand whilst the Tory Mayor of Torbay, the Tory Council of East Devon are denying the older people freedom to travel across Devon? Would the Prime Minister say whether which is right and will he ask his successor to ensure that funding is available for the scheme to continue? Actually, actually I've got... Uh, th first of all, I should thank him for, for paying tribute to what we're doing for pensioners. And actually, I've got some other things to add from the Liberal Democrats about the record of this government over the last 10 years, because they posted on their website four out of 10 for the Blair Brown years. Well, the six I kind of accepted, but then the four. What are the four that we've got right, according to the Liberal Democrats? Stability for the economy. A foreign policy with an ethical dimension. Historic modernization. Historic modernisation of our political system, beginning with the creation of a Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly. And then fourth, after initially sticking to Tory spending limits, investment in Britain's dilapidated public services started. The fruits of that investment can now be seen in the NHS. This is from the Lib Dems. In the NHS, more staff, reduced waiting lists, better care in areas like cancer. And in education, a school building programme, better paid teachers, more books and better equipment. 
voting Tory or Lib Dem, they should be voting Labour. Indian Billy. Uh, th thank you, Mr. Speaker. I, I know that my uh, right honourable friend is both an enthusiast for education and football. Can I draw his attention to a scheme in my constituency, uh, the ACES scheme, which is a partnership between West Bromwich Albion Football Club, local schools and the local authority, which has raised academic standards by an estimated 9% over the last two years. It is funded by the NRF. Could he undertake to monitor this scheme and see what potential it has to be rolled out in other historically deprived educational areas? Well, first of all, can I... Uh echo the congratulations my honourable friend has given to, to, the, to the scheme and, and thank West Bromwich Albion and all those other partners in it for the work that they're doing. And what is important, I think, is to recognise, and I've seen this for myself, actually, for example, in the, uh, in the new facilities very close to West Bromwich Albion um, itself, but what, what has happened is that there has been a massive increase in the regeneration in our inner city areas, and that's why it's important we keep that funding going. It's being made good use of, and it's producing better facilities and, and reduced levels of deprivation. And I entirely support his congratulations to those involved in that scheme. Mulholland. Yeah. Mr Speaker, in 1997, the Prime Minister said that one of the main reasons people elected a Labour government was their concern that the NHS was failing them and their families. Let the honourable gentleman speak. And in 2007, consultants said the present state of children's services in Leeds is not fit for purpose and we are anxious about the continuing safety of children in hospital. Can I ask the Prime Minister, in the dying days of his Premiership, is this is this his NHS legacy in Leeds? Or will he, before he goes, promise the people of Leeds that we will at last get the much-needed hospital, children's hospital that was approved in 2004 and shelved in 2007? Well, actually, I, thought, I, wonder, I wonder whether that was a planted question because the NHS legacy is more staff and, of course, in his area there have been 31,000 more NH staff, including 7,000 more nurses. Um, it is reduced waiting lists, and actually the number of people waiting over six months has fallen dramatically. And, of course, in relation to the Children's Hospital, yes, we are committed to this extra investment in the health service, but he should know that when, for example, in Making Lives Better, there is a, a request for the Leeds MPs to come along to a meeting and he doesn't attend, it doesn't say a great deal for him. <laughs> We can't have points of order, and I'm not responsible for the Prime Minister's answers. Prime Minister. If it is, if it is not correct, I apologise entirely, but I, I've also told that he had two meetings arranged with the Strategic Health Authority Chief Executive, which he's also cancelled. <laughs> the Prime Minister will be aware that yesterday we had a visit in Northern Ireland from the President uh, of the, Paisley. the Prime Minister will be aware that yesterday we had a visit in Northern Ireland from the President of the European Commission.
At that meeting, he said he made an announcement that he was instituting a task force to look into the position of Northern Ireland, re the money that comes from Europe, and also to help new industry. Would he join with me and the people of Northern Ireland in welcoming uh, that uh, announcement? And would he give us a promise today, before he leaves office, that he will bag it all the way? Well, uh, first of all, I, I understand the importance of the uh, visit of the President of the European Commission, which I know is in, in part in direct response to uh, the right honourable gentleman's request for him to do so. And I can assure him I will fully back whatever the Commission does in order to support investment and industry in Northern Ireland. Jim Dobbin. Speaker. Um, a company called Quibbenborn, who are one of the country's largest manufacturers and exporters of switchgear, have announced this week that they are going to close with the loss of 200 exceptionally well-skilled jobs. Um, the rumour is that they may be intending to move to China or India. Uh, how can the government encourage companies like Quibbenborn uh, one, to remain in my uh, constituency, and two, to remain in the UK. And I'm meeting the trade unions on Friday, and I would like to give them some hope. Well, I think, um, uh, first of all, we should extend our, our sympathy for those that, that, um, who, who have lost their jobs and been made redundant as a, as a result of the decision the company has taken. I mean, it is, it is difficult for us to prevent companies deciding to relocate. I think the best thing that we can do for business and industry is to keep our economy strong, to improve the levels of investment in skills, and to make sure, which we now do, where there are major redundancies announced, we come in and we provide a proper structured help um, for those that, that are, are made redundant. Where we can, of course, too, we encourage companies um, to, um, to, to, to keep their location here in this, this country, and I'm sure uh, my honourable friend will have an opportunity to, of discussing those possibilities with the Department of Trade and Industry. But it is an unfortunate fact here and around the world that companies today are highly mobile. The most important thing, however, is to keep the economy sufficiently strong so that we're always generating new jobs. Lee Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's me again, Prime Minister. Will the Prime Minister please use his final weeks in office to secure the release of the hostages Alan Johnson and Corporal Gilad Shalit working together with the Palestinian Authority, and I believe this will secure a way forward for peace in the Middle East. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'm sorry that uh, Alan Johnson, and indeed in a different um, context, uh, Corporal Shalit, are, are still kept as hostages. I mean, I fully agree with them that their release would make a big difference um, in the Middle East. There is also, in respect of Alan Johnson, there is no conceivable reason for him to be um, kept. He was a journalist doing his job out there, and there have also been many calls from Palestinian leaders and Palestinian journalists for his release, and we continue to do everything we can to facilitate that. And he's right also in saying that, in respect of Corporal Shalit, it would allow a whole series of things to happen, not least releases of Palestinian prisoners and other things that would allow us to move this situation forward. And there continues to be nothing more urgent than the Middle East. Alan Makel. Is my right honourable friend aware of the efforts being made by the Welsh Assembly under Labour to promote social enterprise and cooperative initiatives? Does he agree that economic and social development in Wales depends on a continuation of the strong partnership between the House of Commons and the Assembly, both under Labour? Uh, and would he encourage uh, people to fear the dangers 
uh, of a negative nexus of nationalists and conservatives. Well, I certainly think when, when we, we look at the, the large investment in, in, in Wales and also the tremendous strength of the Welsh economy and the action that's been taken by the Welsh executive um, under the leadership of Roderick Morgan has been essential, obviously, in that. And, of course, I would have thought that is infinitely preferable to this ragbag, strange coalition between the Conservative Party and Nationalists. Sir Robert Smith. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Today, Mrs Ogg retires as sub-postmistress after 30 years' service in the post office in Lawrence Kirk. Will the Prime Minister in, join me in congratulating her on her retirement? and ensure that her successor, when the DTI announces the future of the post office, enjoys the same success as he hopes his successor will? Well, first of all, of course, I join, uh, I join with him in congratulating her for her, her service and the work that she has done over the years. Um, secondly, however, I, I, I would point out that it is a result of this government that we've managed to invest, I think, somewhere in the region of £2 billion in the post office network. Now, we know it's still subject, for all the reasons that are understandable, um, to intense pressure, but I hope very much the successor is, um, of, of that particular post office is, is able to continue and to make sure that the, the post office has a viable future, but it has to be a viable future, obviously, within the subsidy we're able to give. Richard Burden. Speaker, can I thank my right honourable friend for visiting my constituency just a few weeks ago to review progress on projects that uh, arise from, well, honourable members officer might consider this to be important, projects for local people who are suffering major change following the collapse of MG Rover a, a, few, a couple of years ago. Will he assure me that that support, particularly for community infrastructure, will continue? And does he agree with me that ongoing support from government year in, year out, for local communities facing change is vitally important, rather unlike what we experienced in the 1980s and early 1990s. Well, there has been a, um, a, a big change in the way that we deal with, with situations where there are large numbers of redundancies. And I, I would pay tribute, in fact, to the work my honourable friend also has done um, in respect of the collapse of Rover, because that was an important part of us bringing together all the different partners. We made a big investment from government and as I saw for myself when I visited his constituency, um, the large proportion of those people have now found alternative work and employment. Um, there has been an immense amount of effort that's got into it and I think that is what a modern welfare state is about, not trying to pretend that we can stop companies closing if they're not profitable or if there's a decision made to relocate them, but getting underneath the workforce and supporting them in their desire to achieve new work and be able to cope with the process of that redundancy. And it's been immensely uh, successful in relation to MG Rover, and I would pay tribute to everyone engaged in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recent court decisions have left us in the extraordinary position that the government can neither deport nor detain dangerous foreign terrorists. These decisions flow directly from the Human Rights Act. And as it's within the power of this House to amend the Human Rights Act and within the power of the government to file a derogation from the European Convention, why does he not bring forward amending legislation so that this situation can be remedied? Yeah. Because it, it, it isn't the problem. The problem is the European Convention on Human Rights. And the, the reason why there is a problem is because of the court case that was actually, um, I think, in 1996, that, that it was in relation to, I think I'm right in saying, um, those who were um, alleged to be engaged in terrorism in respect of India at the time. And as a result of that case, I think the Shalal case it's called, um, there, has, there has been this difficulty created. Now, we are trying to get that decision um, overturned um, in respect of the, uh, the European Court 
um, on human rights, and it is essential that we do so, because where I completely agree with them is that we cannot have a situation where people come to this country, engage either in acts of terrorism or inciting terrorism or encouraging terrorism, and then we're told we can't deport them back to their own country, even with a member of, under, of understanding for that, with that country, when, um, when, when they simply say, well, we, we may be mistreated when we go back to that country, despite what they're doing here. You ask what we're doing about it. What we're doing about it is trying to get that decision overturned. It isn't correct, however, that it comes about as a result of domestic legislation. It comes about as a result of that case decided, in fact, under the last government and under the European Convention on Human Rights. Guardian Unlimited.